Good morning, friends. So glad that you're here. It's been uh, a joy to uh, celebrate the 20 years of God's faithfulness together. Um, seeing these videos week after week has really been a great reminder of all the good things that God has done. And we continue here this week on uh, the celebration. I, I hope you'll, you'll uh, join us um, in the upcoming events that we have. Um, Holy Week, we have, of course, Easter and all that, but that, we want to celebrate all these things before we get to Easter. We've got this week, I believe, on Thursday um, at 6.30, an event that we'd love to have you at. And then, of course, next Sunday is going to be our uh, grand celebration. Um, of the 20 years ago, we had our first meeting at um, East Valley High School. And then Sunday evening, we're going to have more to celebrate together. I hope you'll be there. It's going to be a great time together. I know that, that you'll be blessed by it. And the reason that, that we can celebrate 20 years of God's faithfulness is because God has been faithful since the beginning. Not just the beginning of Sun Valley, but the beginning beginning. He's always been faithful. That's a character quality of God. He's a God of faithfulness, and he has always been such. In fact, if you look back as far as you can in human history, his faithfulness goes back further than that. And it was in eternity past that he planned um, all the events in human history. It was in human history that he orchestrated the events that he had planned in order to enter into human history 2,000 years ago to accomplish our salvation. The reading, reason you're sitting here this morning is because of the faithfulness of God. The Passion of Christ, which is the title of all that Christ endured during this final week that we're looking at now in the Gospel of Mark, uh, is the focus of our current sermon series. It's an amazing time period to look at, full of intricate series of events that reveals the deep love that God has for his people, the deep love that God has for you and for me, all, all wrapped up in this one week of events. In order to accomplish our salvation, everything that happened on that momentous week had to happen, and there was even more happening behind the scenes that isn't sitting on the surface, that you have to do a little digging to discover, like study the book of Hebrews, and see what actually was going on behind the scenes on this Passion Week. But in order to accomplish what he did, <clears throat> all these things had to take place. Every event reveals an aspect of the deep passion that God in Jesus Christ has for mankind. So if, you, if you're sitting here this morning wondering, or if you have ever wondered whether or not God loves you, then this would be a sermon to pay attention to. Or you could just read the Bible, uh, focusing on Passion Week. Both will highlight God's love for you specifically. <clears throat> As you know, one of the objectives of a sermon is to apply the scripture to everyday life, right? That's one of the reasons we appreciate sermons, if we do. In our Passion of Christ sermon series, which is where we're at right now, we're in the second week of that, and this is a rapidly moving 
uh, sermon series through Mark chapter 14 through Mark chapter 16, we're going to have opportunity to apply different spiritual truths to your lives. I, I, I'll, I'll make opportunity to show you um, ways that, that these principles can be applied to your life along the way. But my primary objective as we go through this sermon series on the Passion of Christ um, is to help you see the love of Jesus personally more clearly. Something that Andy and Kelly said in their, in their video was that they learned to love Christ more. And they learned to love Christ more by observing Christ more. And so I want to in, encourage you to look for Christ here everywhere <coughs> um, as we work through this sermon series. It is a fast-moving sermon series. We're going to get through chapter 16 by the time we get to, to um, Easter Sunday. But then we're going to return and go through this same uh, text, chapters 14 through 16, and spend a little more time looking a little more closely. And I'm going to call that sermon series um, The Theology of the Cross. So this is just the Passion of Christ, and then the next time through will be called The Theology of the Cross because we're going to dive in a little more deeply into these things. But I want you to, I want you as a result of this first pass through the Passion Week, I want you to find yourself more and more drawn to Christ. I, I want you to be uh, thinking in your mind <clears throat> how you love Christ more because of what you just heard. I want you to maybe even during the sermon just bow your heart and, and worship God right where you sit because of these spectacular things that are revealed on the pages of this Passion Week series. And so as we begin, you heard the text read earlier, what we're going to cover today. I know it's a lot, but it happened in the first service, so I'm, I'm hoping that by God's grace it'll happen again here in the second service. Um, my throat, though, is wearing out, so uh, beware. Uh, I, if, if I just give up the ghost here, uh, in the next few minutes, it's recorded, and we can just play the recording. So we'll we'll get through it one way or another. But the first the first section I want to point to bring your attention to point out to you is Mark chapter fourteen verses forty three through sixty five, and I'm calling it the poisonous plan. The poisonous plan. In in Mark chapter fourteen, just a few Sundays ago, we we looked at. Judas's conspiracy with the religious leaders to hand Jesus over to them in secret so that there'd be no crowds, so there'd be no rioting. And he did this for an agreed price of 30 pieces of silver. Uh, this was just a few verses back, Mark chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. In real time, it was literally 36 to 48 hours before the events that are recorded in today's passage. But the, the, but the plan, the, that poisonous plan I'm referring to was actually formed much earlier than a week before Jesus was crucified. The religious leaders had been planning and conniving for more than a year. If you remember back as we studied through Mark, and if you were here when we studied through John, you saw this, right? You saw that it was, wasn't too long before the religious leaders in Israel became opponents to Christ. And, and so much so that they desired to kill him and, and plan for ways to do so. 
So this has been going on for at least a year, but even before that, the poisonous plan had been laid, and evidently it wasn't originating with the religious leaders. It originated with Satan himself. So the, the plan was hatched by Satan. Satan had been planning the destruction of Jesus for years, if not centuries. We know that he is an enemy of God and an enemy of God's creation. He has been, ever since he was thrown out of heaven, for his rebellion, planning this particular reality. But to keep the focus on Passion Week, I want to remind you of what the Apostle John says in his record of the Last Supper in John 13. John 13, verse 27 says this, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Who are we talking about? Judas. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. So this is something that I was going to uh, cover on our second run through this section. Um, but I decided to use it here because of its significance. We really can't fully, I don't think, fully understand the passion of Christ without understanding Satan's opposition to the person and work of Christ. In order to get how significant Christ's love is for you where you sit, you have to understand the opposition to Christ from Satan, the enemy, has been a long going, a long time ongoing opposition. Satan has been in opposition to Christ throughout human history but especially during the three-year ministry of Jesus on planet Earth. Satan knew that this time of sacrifice was critically important to God's plan, and <clears throat> he knew it was coming, and Satan used all his resources at hand to try to upend everything Jesus intended to accomplish. The irony, listen to the irony of this, though, that Satan's poisonous plan was that God ordained the that the God-ordained Satan's opposition would accomplish God's plan of salvation. Did you hear that? The, the irony of Satan's poisonous plan was that God ordained Satan's opposition to accomplish his loving purposes. It might have been better, I would think, to plan the encouragement, if you were Satan, it might have been better to plan the encouragement of Israel's leaders to embrace Jesus as Messiah, as King, wouldn't you think? To set up his earthly kingdom, to avoid all that took place at Calvary, all the rejection that led up to Calvary. This, of course, would have eliminated Jesus' work of redemption on Calvary, which would have destroyed any hope of salvation for anyone ever. That seems it would have been a more strategic plan if you were Satan. Why not encourage the worship of Jesus, the installation of Jesus as king, no Calvary. Well, here's why, because God's in charge, not Satan. So let's look at the pawns, the pawns of this poisonous plan, who willingly participated. Even though God is sovereign, controlling the details of his plan of redemption, in other words, he controls every minute detail of getting you from pre-Christ to glory and everybody else that's going to join us there, even though God is sovereign controlling the details of his plan of redemption, he did not violate the willing choices of the players that brought about his plan. 
In other words, he did not force Judas to betray Jesus. He did not force the religious leaders to oppose Jesus to the point of murder. No. All the people involved in bringing about the poisonous plan, the death of Jesus, did what they did willingly. They were Satan's pawns in Satan's scheme. For example, Judas. We get to verse 43 here in chapter 14, and the conspiracy comes to a head after Judas leaves the Last Supper to meet religious authorities and take them to Jesus in Gethsemane. Just so you can keep your timetable straight. The Bible tells us that Judas's motive was greed. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, we learn that Judas was a thief and that he would help himself to the money purse that the disciples kept. Um, and that's what, that's what Judas is known for. And so we, we deduct that, that Judas was in this whole program for financial gain, personal financial gain. But when he realized that profiting from Jesus' kingdom wasn't going to happen, I think Judas took what he could, when he could, and ran. He took the 30 pieces of silver knowing there wouldn't be any more because Jesus was going down for the count and it seemed that Jesus was okay with that. But Judas wanted something for his efforts and so he betrayed Jesus for money. One of the most difficult parts of this drama was the fact that one of the inner circle was the betrayer. It wasn't somebody that was outside, maybe a second or third level relationship. No, it was someone from the inner circle, one of the 12. All four gospels record this because of its shocking nature. Judas had witnessed all the miracles, hadn't he? He had heard all the lessons, seen all the, the, the sermons that Jesus preached. He, was, he had a position of privilege beyond most. That's why it was so difficult to swallow. But we also have the religious leaders who were the pawns in this story, also mentioned in verse 43. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders. This, this was a group who made up the Jewish um, religious leadership called the Sanhedrin. These guys ran the show. They were the power brokers in Israel. Um, these guys were revered for their piety, their knowledge of scripture, their interest in the welfare of Israel. But here they were arresting with the intent of putting to death, with the intent of murdering Israel's long awaited Messiah, the king of Israel. They were planning his murder. So the religious leaders in cowardly fashion surrounded themselves with other pawns here, guards, Roman soldiers with clubs and swords. This made up the group of pawns that Satan used to fulfill his poisonous plan. Judas had made an agreement with the members, like I said, of the Sanhedrin to, to be paid 30 pieces of silver to hand Jesus over in the cover of night to avoid uh, upheaval, to avoid rioting. The identifying sign, of course, was the famous Judas kiss, right? In the first century, Judas, Jewish culture uh, would see a kiss on the cheek as a sign of respect, affection, honor, loyalty, etc. A kiss would have been a sign of close friendship, a kiss like this. The fact that Judas betrayed Jesus through an action that normally expressed devotion and love reveals uh, somewhat of the character and nature of Judas, doesn't it? To be lowly, hypocritical, 
treacherous. So Jesus knew this was coming, of course, all along. He, he prophesied it would happen. But it still surprised his other disciples who were with him at the time. Judas was one of them. So this surprise took all of them off guard, so much so that one of them drew a sword and took a wild swing at the head of one of the arresting party, missing his head and clipping his ear. John's gospel identifies this wild swordsman as Peter. We also see in the gospels that they only had two swords amongst the 12. And I don't know who was in charge of the swords, but I'm not sure I would have given one to Peter, knowing what we know about Peter, right? And yet he had one and, you know, to give it to him, he, he used it, right? He went after this opponent of Christ but what did Jesus say to Peter at that moment? Not recorded in Mark, but recorded in Matthew chapter 26. He said, Peter, put away your sword. What is happening here right now is necessary to fulfill scripture. In other words, this has been planned, Peter. This is why I came. You can't get in the way of God's will. I don't care if you're Satan or one of his pawns. It's going to happen. Put away your sword. And then what happened? All the disciples ran for the woods, literally. They took off. The, the point wants, that Mark here is trying to make is to help us see, not that the disciples took off, but to help us see that Jesus died alone. He didn't have a, a support group. He didn't have a, a small group that would support him through his trial. No, he was alone with his heavenly father. It was... Jesus and his father. And he didn't run. He calmly, confidently accepted his situation as ordained by God, as it had been planned in eternity past. And he went quietly back with them to Jerusalem, to the house of the high priest, where they would hold a mock trial, kangaroo court, and convict him of crimes he didn't commit. So Jesus willingly participated because he knew that the redemptive purposes of his presence on earth was coming to a climactic conclusion this very day. It says in Hebrews that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What joy? This joy that we're experiencing, forgiveness of sin, salvation. For this joy, Jesus endured what we're reading about here in Mark 14 through 16. So dropped into the middle of this narrative, almost as if the author was hoping no one would notice, we, we look at verses 51 and 52, chapter 14. Look at this and see if this doesn't strike you as a little bit odd. <clears throat> we have this young man who got caught and then ran away naked. He was First of all, he was in his underwear. What's he doing in his underwear, running around in the middle of the night? Maybe he got out of bed, heard some commotion outside the window. I don't know. Anyways, he's following this group of people in his underwear. They catch him, and they pull his underwear off, and he runs off. What's the point of that? You know, when you when it comes to the, the Passion Week, which is full of significant information, we read about this teenager who's running around naked in the middle of the night in Jerusalem. I, I doubt it was common. Here is why. Listen to this. You know who that young man was? You know who church history says it was? It was Mark. 
<laughs> is the guy writing the book. I'm sure you would have left your name out also. Right? This was, this was Peter's primary disciple. This guy, Mark, who wrote the book. That was him. He was there. He saw this stuff go down. Albeit in his underwear, but he saw it. Then we come to the sham trial seen in verses 55 through 65. Talk about a sham. Listen to this. In order, <clears throat> excuse me, in order for the trial, any trial, to be legal in Israel, the trial had to be held during daylight hours. Was it daylight? No. Well, it, it gets worse. Listen to this. Two or more witnesses had to agree on the charges. False witnesses would assume the penalty of their accusations. If the death penalty was chosen, the accuser had to inflict the first wound of that penalty. In capital cases, in other words, where the death penalty was in view, Jewish law required that a full day must pass between the guilty verdict and carrying out the sentence. <laughs> Every single one of these were broken in this experience that Jesus went through. Every single one of these requirements was disregarded by the people who were supposed to keep the law, the Sanhedrin. The whole process was a sham. Mark records that the trial of Jesus beginning in Caiaphas' house or Caiaphas' courtyard, where the Sanhedrin had assembled to participate in this sham, they had no evidence to convict Jesus of any crime, much less a capital crime. No. You may wonder, well, <laughs> good grief, why didn't Jesus just open his mouth and defend himself? Seems like it would have been easy to do. Keep in mind Jesus' point in being here at this moment in time. Let me, let me remind you of the two reasons, obvious reasons, that Jesus remained silent when accused of all these false things. Things like we would say, uh-uh, you know, that's not true. That didn't happen. I never said that. I never did that. That'd be our intent. But keeping in mind the point that Jesus was here for a purpose, listen to these two reasons. Isaiah 53, 7 prophesied this about the coming Messiah, that he would be oppressed and afflicted. He would not open his mouth like a lamb to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before it shears, so he did not open his mouth. All these things must happen, Jesus said to Peter, in order to fulfill all of Scripture. Jesus was thinking about Isaiah 53 when these accusations were flying left and right, false accusations. And secondly, I think just as important was that Jesus came, like I said earlier, to do this very thing, die. He certainly could have debated his way out of this. He had a divine mind. He could have easily put Pilate and all these members of the Sanhedrin in their place with half his brain tied behind his back. Easily. In fact, remember what he told Peter, not in Mark, but in Luke's gospel uh, account. He said, Peter, don't you think, after the sword swinging e e incident, don't you think I could have called on a legion of angels from my father and he would have sent them? 
I really don't need you, Peter, an unskilled fisherman, defending me with the sword dangerously, may I say. Yeah, Jesus was not interested in being defended by himself or anybody else for that matter. He was interested in dying to accomplish your salvation, mine. Since they couldn't find any crimes that Jesus could be condemned for, and because God had planned and ordained for Jesus to die on this day, the high priest answered the question that he knew Jesus would respond to as he wished. Are you the Christ? He'd already heard Jesus say that he was. Are you the Christ? The Son of the Blessed? The Son of God? I've heard you say these two things already. Yes, it is as you say. Jesus said, and you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And as if, you know, in his, in his false offense, oh my goodness, can you believe the blasphemy coming out of this man's mouth? Touring his robes. Um, he's then accused of blasphemy, which is one of the few crimes in Israel that was punishable by death. But there remained a significant problem. Israel couldn't enforce the death penalty because they were, they were in a Roman province. So they had to convince Pilate of something more, all right? But here in verse 65 is where the torture began, you can see. He was blindfolded, punched, slapped after he was blindfolded, spit on, taunted, ridiculed. That was all part of the poisonous plan. Satan wanted to really lay it on him, really. But before we get to the attempt of the Sanhedrin to persuade Pilate of something worthy of the death penalty, let's look at this presumptuous Peter that is inserted here in the text. We have this next significant section that records more events in the Passion of Christ. Uh, I'm calling the, the presumptuous Peter, Mark chapter 14, verses 66 through 72. Um, interesting story. The main character of this story, it seems, at least on the surface, is Peter. But with a little bit of digging, you discover that it's not actually about Peter. It's about the faithfulness of Jesus in Peter's defense and support. The main character is actually Jesus. He is seen here through the, this story from beginning to end as the loving and sanctifying savior, savior who upheld Peter all the way through his failure. This is the kind of Savior that saves us. We are just like Peter. We, we fail just like Peter. And aren't we glad to hear and understand that we have a sanctifying, loving Savior who's walking through our failure with us? He's not... It's distancing himself from us when we fail. No. He's walking with us through it, just like he did here with Peter. And I'm going to show it to you. First of all, though, we need to, we need to recognize the unfounded confidence we see in Peter, right? Peter said, I will never uh, deny you. Even if I have to die for you, I'm not going to deny you. Of course, he did. Um, but his faith wasn't as strong as he thought it was, evidently, or he wouldn't have said the things he said. His determination, his strength... Even physical strength wasn't as strong as he thought it was to resist the heat in the moment. No. And it seems we have principles concerning these things all over Scripture. Here's a couple. 
1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Seems like this is common to proud people. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and haughty spirit before a fall. Introduce Peter, stage right. Here's the character that can prove these things. Peter's case, it seems, is the classic case of overconfidence and pride. He thought too highly of his personal strength. He was a fisherman, though, a strong guy, capable guy, solved his own problems for his entire life. Certainly he could handle this, right? But God in his faithfulness used these events to strengthen Peter's faith, even in failure, and bring about great spiritual growth that God used to pastor that fledgling church in the first century. Do you realize that without Peter's failure on the night of his denial, we would have not had the first century church? It required Peter's failure. He had to get his mind right in order to be a man of character to the depth that was required to lead a church through that first struggling first century church. We see that Peter did too much boasting. We can see it pretty much in every gospel, but I want to show it to you in Luke chapter 22. This is what Jesus said to Peter in verses 31 and 32 of Luke 22. Simon, Simon, kind of give attention. Pay attention, Peter, listen to me. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. What an encouragement, what a warning. You would think, oh man, I'm gonna pay attention here for the next few minutes at least. Not Peter. The very next breath of air that was available in the room, Peter took it and he said this, the very next verse. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and death. <clears throat> well, we, we can't blame him for having the right intentions, right? <laughs> but Peter did too little praying. Uh, less than 12 hours earlier, do you remember the comment that Jesus made to the disciples who were sleeping? Watch and pray to avoid temptation. You want to get through this, boys? Watch and pray. Peter yawned and said, Meh, maybe not. I'm going to take a nap. Peter ignored that instruction literally less than 12 hours earlier and thought that through his own strength, his own character, his own willpower, he could manage it. Self-confidence. And of course, then we see the expected outcome, don't we? We see this coming a mile away. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. <laughs> you know this is coming before it's even said. The Old Testament, of course, prophesied that Jesus' disciples would flee. Zechariah 13.7 says such. Um, Mark 14.50 records their flight. They ran for the hills. And like I said earlier, Peter's denial has been recorded in all four Gospels because of the significance of the lesson that was learned. And the, the fact that that lesson is something we each need to learn. Dependence on Christ. When you read through the Gospel accounts, you can see Peter's denial coming way ahead of time. All the warning signs are there, and of course he does exactly what we expect. He denies Christ. Now, I want you to look at verse 71 and 72 with me particularly. But he began to invoke, this is Peter, after being questioned three times, 
about whether or not he knew Jesus, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. <clears throat> now, picture this in the vernacular. Peter was a rough and tumble Galilean fisherman. I think those words came out of his mouth. <laughs> Just like you'd expect. Exactly like you'd expect. And so verse 71 is the climax of Peter's denial. He was livid, or at least pretending to be livid, with these accusations of knowing Jesus. But interestingly, Mark and the Holy Spirit places the climax of Peter's denial right next to the climax of Peter's sanctification in verse 72. Look at verse 72. And immediately, there's that term that we see in Mark when he wants to, us to pay attention and make a point here. Immediately, the rooster crowed for a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he, that is Peter, broke down and wept. Side by side, the climax of his denial next to the climax of his sanctification. In Luke's gospel, chapter 22, verse 61, right after the rooster crowed, it says that Jesus turned and looked at Peter from across the courtyard. Their eyes met. Can you imagine that? <laughs> what a glance that must have been. It was a piercing gaze that went to the deepest places of Peter's soul. Instantly. Here it even says, immediately he broke down and wept. Instantly, according to Luke's gospel, Peter's heart and mind melted and were filled with remorse, with guilt, with shame. And Peter never forgot that moment. And what did he do? Did he respond to his failure the way Judas did? No, he repented, unlike Judas. Judas remained in his distance from Christ. You may, and you say, well, when did Judas get a chance to repent? The moment he kissed Jesus. You remember what Jesus said to him? Recorded in Matthew's gospel? He says, friend, do what you came to do. Friend. Well, that would have pierced most hearts. Not Judas. You see, Peter had been disloyal and disobedient, just like Judas. Peter's courage had failed, just like Judas. Peter's faith, though, would not fail. Everything else around him was failing, but his faith would not fail. Why didn't Peter's faith not fail? Well, first of all, because his faith was authentic. His faith had been generated by the Holy Spirit. And secondly, Jesus the God of heaven had prayed that his faith wouldn't fail. Have you heard this before? God gets what he wants? Yeah. When Jesus, the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, the creator and sustainer of Peter's soul, prayed that his faith would not fail, guess what? His faith wasn't going to fail. <laughs> he would survive. Friends, we will all face trials and temptations, and some of those things will cause us to fail. But I want you to listen closely, maybe even write this down. Failure isn't the test of genuine faith. Failure isn't the test of genuine faith. Repentance is. 
if failure, failure were the test of genuine faith, this room would be empty. What is the test of genuine faith is whether or not you're willing to come back to Jesus, to run back to the source of forgiveness, to the person of the passion, to the one who took your sins to Calvary. See, repentance begins with this heartfelt sorrow that we see in Peter's immediate weeping, then moves towards restoration and a renewed commitment to obedience. That's what restoration is. So have you struggled with sin? What do you do with it? You repent. <laughs> you don't wallow in it. You don't pout about it. You don't have a pity party about it like you might be acting like you're Eeyore or something. You run back to Jesus. That's what you do. So how do we know that Peter's faith was genuine? He had deep sorrow. He desired to be restored with Jesus. He could care less about what other people thought about him. He cared about what Jesus thought about him. You remember what he and John did the moment they heard that the tomb was empty? Was Peter all sheepish? No, he sprinted to the, to the tomb, didn't he? Yeah. He loved and wanted to be with Jesus. He was the disciple, he was with the disciples rather, when they gathered in the upper room after Jesus rose from the dead and when he appeared walking through the wall. Peter was there. Peter was at the tomb, the empty tomb. How, what does this tell us? He returned to Jesus. Unlike Judas. Peter got up off the ground and started over pursuing holy obedience. Now let's finish our time together by looking at this next section, the problem of Pilate, the problems of Pilate. And they were many. Mark 15, <clears throat> verses 1 through 15. By now, it's early Friday morning. According to verse 1, it's just getting light. The Sanhedrin had examined Jesus on these trumped up charges. They had rendered a guilty verdict. Now they were off to, to the court of Pilate to see if they could secure a death penalty. Remember, because only Rome could produce death penalties. Uh, they didn't allow any of their regions their own laws. They had to submit to Roman law, and Roman law required Rome to give a death penalty. And so the Jewish, Jewish courts had no authority. All they could do is recommend. And here they'd come, recommending to Pilate. <clears throat> Let's look at how Pilate experienced this. This was an introduction to God for Pilate. He was a heathen, a pagan, in every sense of the word. Um, but here we see him being introduced to God face to face in Jesus Christ. And Pilate's first question was the primary thing on his mind. You see what he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Why would he ask such a thing? Well, because of the accusations. Remember the accusations that we find in other um, gospel accounts? This man uh, is, the, the Sanhedrin was accusing Jesus in front of Pilate 
that Jesus was an insurrectionist, that he didn't want people paying taxes to Caesar, that he was going to be his own little rebellion. They'd had these before, Rome had. And so this is the, the, the scheme that the Sanhedrin came up with. And so Pilate's first question makes sense. Are you the king of the Jews? Do you, do you think that you're in competition with Caesar, buddy? He wanted to know. What did Jesus think about these things? Rumor has it that you're called a king, Jesus. Rumor has it that you're the promised Messiah. Are you? And are you in competition with Caesar here? And Jesus gives this incredibly cryptic answer. Listen to what he says. <laughs> you have said so. What does that mean, you have said so? Are you or aren't you? Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so. I, if I were a pilot, I would have said, I've never said so. What do you mean, you have said so? I, I think what Jesus was saying was neither confirming or denying the question of kingship. He was simply saying to Pilate, I am a king, but not the kind you think of. Luke actually unpacks that for us. It's exactly what Jesus was saying. He says, my kingdom is not of this world, in Luke's account. But Luke unpacks these accusations brought by the priests that are found in the next few verses here in Mark 15. Um, and they're, they're obvious attempts to persuade Pilate of the political danger of Jesus. Man, he's a dangerous guy. He could lead a rebellion. Next thing you know, we got a civil war in our hands. It's kind of how it came out. So they wanted Pilate to sentence him to death. And in the face of all these accusations against Jesus, Pilate was amazed, it says. He was amazed, verse 5. Why was he amazed? Because Jesus didn't defend himself. Any normal person would see the lies right for what they are, and they would defend themselves, but not Jesus. And so Pilate basically says, aren't you going to respond? What's the matter with you? The silence was not normal. How could someone be so calm and reserved when being accused of capital offenses? Meet God, Pilate. Meet God. God is never worried about the outcome. Have you learned that yet through the Gospel of Mark? That God is never concerned about the outcome? Have you learned that God is never riled by circumstances? That you can stand calm and composed if you are God in any circumstance? They might rile you and me, not God. No. Even when things seem to be completely out of control, chaos on every side, which seems to be the case here in the court of Pilate, and that seems to be the case in our lives, God stands unmoved. Why? Because he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He plans everything before it happens, and what he plans will come to pass, we read in Isaiah 46. There's no questions about outcome. <laughs> Jesus was in control of this situation. Pilate, meet Jesus, meet God. But we see also, secondly, that Pilate finds himself in a sticky situation. Pilate's track record wasn't good. 
not, not just from biblical history, but the historians, secular historians of the day record some of the reasons that Pilate was in deep trouble here. He, he was known to stick his foot in his mouth regularly. He, he made unwise decisions. And without even trying, he alienated the people he was supposed to govern. And frankly, listen to this, which is reason for his decision to kind of stay out of it. Caesar was tired of it. Caesar was this close to getting rid of Pilate in a couple of ways, losing his job and losing his head. One more bad report, it would have been the end of Pilate's mission and life. And so Pilate finds himself here between a rock and a hard place. Let me give you some examples of what put him in this condition. At one time, Pilate stole sacred funds from the temple treasury in order to build an aqueduct in Jerusalem. Bad move, all right? When, when the people rioted about this, Pilate set, sent undercover soldiers into the crowd, according to Josephus, in plain clothes, and told them to attack protesters with swords and clubs, which they did. <laughs> On another occasion, he had his soldiers slaughter a group of Jews while they were offering sacrifices in the temple. The people hated Pilate and reported all these things to Caesar. So what do we learn from this? That he was in a very vulnerable position by the time the Jewish leaders brought Jesus to him. He could not afford another report to Caesar. So in the trial of Jesus, Pilate tried to be just. He tried to do his job as a governor. He explained to the Jewish leaders who had brought Jesus that he found no guilt, even after they demanded that he crucify Jesus. He said, what has he done? Please tell me. <laughs> but they couldn't. But Pilate couldn't get out of it. Trying to avoid an obvious injustice, Pilate said, I've got an idea. I'm going to offer this annual tradition of exchanging or giving out a prisoner to you. You vote on whoever's in prison and I'll set him free. And Pilate's plan was to present the worst possible prisoner he had in exchange for Jesus. And guess who his worst potential prisoner was? It was Barabbas. This guy was an insurrectionist. He was a condemned murderer. Everybody knew who he was. He was a filthy guy. And Pilate said, I, I know. I'll say, who do you want? Barabbas or Jesus, and they'll have to go with Jesus. They'll have to take him. No. Not even good intentions of Pilate can interrupt the plans of God. The people said, we want Barabbas. <laughs> can you imagine such a thing? What? No. This guy, Barabbas, this guy here. The guy who's killed some of our neighbors and friends and family members. This guy. You want me to release him? Instead of the guy who feeds you from nothing, the guy who heals your diseases, the guy who teaches you the word of God. Wait a minute. What's going on here? We read that Pilate understood what was going on. But he had to submit to the requests. And here's where we find the condemning weakness. Look at verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, there's the thing you underline, wishing to satisfy the crowd. He did what? Released Barabbas and turned Jesus over to be scourged. Now, I'm not going to get into the gory details too much, um, but um, 
this particular beating that Jesus took is notorious. Historians tell us, secular historians tell us that um, there were many who never survived the scourging. Uh, the whip that was used was made of leather and to the strip, end of the strips of leather was attached bone and metal and glass with the, for the purpose of um, grinding up the flesh. Um, these once hit into the body would bury themselves into the flesh and then be ripped away from the, the one being beaten and tear that flesh away from the bone as it was pulled away. Thus, the beatings usually continued until the prisoner became unconscious or died. That's how it went. Um, according to Luke's account, Pilate was hoping that after the crowd seeing Jesus beat to within an inch of his life, literally being shred to pieces, the Jews would relent and say, that's enough. But they didn't. Why? Because God was going to die that day. What we're seeing here, friends, is the passion of Christ. Jesus not only endured all of this for us, but he planned the details in order to guarantee, to secure your salvation and mine. Blood must be spilt. The body must be broken. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So do you wonder, or maybe should I say, do you still wonder if Jesus loves you? It's beyond doubt. Pray with me. Oh, Lord Jesus, you, our suffering Savior, the one who endured these things recorded so that we might have our sins forgiven, so that we might have a place in glory one day, so that we can avoid the torments of hell, you stood in our place. You took what we deserved. You accomplished our salvation. In spite of our rebellion, in spite of our sin, in spite of our continued failure, you did this for us. And the only thing that we can do in response is to worship and thank you. And so we do. We bow our our hearts in front of you, before you, and acknowledge our unworthiness, even to mention these things, let alone receive them. And lift up our praises to you, which will in fact require an eternity to get through. Father, we thank you so much for orchestrating the plan of salvation with Jesus our Savior and the Holy Spirit in eternity past, that these things would come to pass as you planned to the detail so that our sins would be forgiven and we would be in glory in joyful bliss with you for eternity. We bless you and thank you for these things. Amen.